I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. It was the summer of 1990 one of the hottest on record in three decades. Louis and Daisy Cabiz were a hard-working couple who lived in Thunder Bay, Ontario. They owned the Columbia Grill and Tavern, a popular Greek restaurant on South May Street. Located on the shores of Lake Superior, Thunder Bay was a city of 120,000 people, with a diverse population and a rich Indigenous culture. Originally a port town, it was an important transportation hub for shipping grain from the western provinces onto eastern Canada through the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence Seaway. Forestry and manufacturing had also played important roles in the city's economy, but both industries had declined over the years. By the early 1990s, Thunder Bay had become more of a transient kind of town and the Cabiz often had a hard time finding reliable staff for their restaurant. And the summer months were their busiest, with Canadian and American tourists exploring the rugged north. So when a well-spoken American woman applied for a waitressing job in July, they were happy to hire her. She was very attractive, pleasant, and well-dressed. Daisy Cabiz thought the young brunette looked like a model, and that certainly wasn't going to hurt business. The woman's name was Jennifer Lee Gazana, and she was in her early 30s. She had an impressive resume, and she said that her and her husband Anthony had recently relocated to Thunder Bay from Chicago. They loved the outdoors, and the northern Canadian city offered an abundance of nature and open-air activities. Jennifer and Anthony had rented a basement apartment on Banning Street in the city's north end. They were well-liked by their neighbors, as they often helped out with grass-cutting and other chores. They were a quiet couple, always polite, and they had recently adopted a kitten. Jennifer worked six days a week at the Columbia Grill, and in the evenings, she worked as an aerobics instructor at a local health club. Anthony was working as a short-order cook at another restaurant in town. Jennifer was an instant hit with the customers at the Columbia Grill. 
and the Kabis even noticed that some of their male regulars hung around just a little longer when she was working. The restaurant was a popular hangout for local businessmen and cops, since the police station was just down the street. So the Kabis weren't overly concerned when they noticed a man staring at the beautiful waitress one day. The guy wasn't local. He said he was on vacation from California. But regardless, he seemed very interested in the fellow American. Then, five days later, another stranger walked into the Columbia Grill. He sat down, ordered a coffee, and watched intently as Jennifer moved between the tables serving her customers. Then he approached her and asked her her name. But he really wasn't a customer. He was a detective with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And he was there on a tip the local detachment had received. He was looking for an American fugitive a convicted murderer who had escaped from a Wisconsin prison three months earlier. The popular television show America's Most Wanted had recently aired a segment on the wanted woman, and an American tourist had called the FBI to say he was sure the woman had waited on him at a restaurant in Thunder Bay, Ontario. The pretty waitress told the RCMP detective that her name was Jennifer Lee Gazana and presented her birth certificate. Yes, she was American, but she didn't know anything about the woman the FBI were looking for. After the detective left the restaurant, Louis Cabiz, Jennifer's boss, found her crying in the back room of the restaurant. She told Louis that she had just been informed that her mother had died. She needed to go home. Of course, said Louis, and watched her leave. The RCMP detective who had spoken to Jennifer at the restaurant had returned to the police station. He wasn't sure what to make of the pretty waitress. She had been very cooperative and didn't seem phased by his questioning. He figured it was most likely a case of mistaken identity. Why would an American fugitive be hiding out in Thunder Bay? And if she was, she certainly wouldn't be working at a job serving the public. The detective was planning to contact the FBI to say the lead hadn't panned out. But then a routine check on that identification that the waitress had given him came back as not valid. Jennifer Lee Gazana didn't exist. The police would later discover that Jennifer Gazana was the name of a baby girl born on January 7, 1961, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But the baby had only survived for one month. The RCMP detective needed to talk to that waitress again, and fast. Three hours later, with a search warrant in hand, two detectives pulled up to the address that Jennifer Gazana had given them on Banning Street. They were greeted by the woman and her husband, and it was immediately obvious to the detectives that the couple were planning to run. Their car was already packed. The waitress and the short-order cook were arrested and taken to the Thunder Bay Police Station, 
where their true identities were soon discovered. News of their arrest didn't take long to get out, and by that evening, their images were all over the airways. Famous female fugitive arrested in Thunder Bay, Ontario. One of America's most wanted prison escapees was finally back in police custody after bolting from a Wisconsin prison three months earlier. But little did anyone realize at the time that her recapture in Canada was just the beginning of the next chapter in what was already one of the most sensational murder cases and tabloid stories in North America. Her name was Laurencia. Friends and family called her Lori. But to the world, she was Bambi. Bambi Bambenic. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true crime story of a woman who became one of the most celebrated fugitives in American history. She was a convicted murderer, and she was on the run. She had already spent nine years in prison, but claimed she was innocent, and many people believed her. Her prison escape made headlines around the world, and soon large groups of supporters were gathering and cheering, Run, Bambi, run! But then, her luck and her fleeting freedom ran out in Thunder Bay. And suddenly, the small northern city became the focus of a media frenzy. And Canada was soon to become a key player in a cross-border tug-of-war that would turn out to be a pivotal moment in the tragic life story of this famous woman. Was she a convicted killer fleeing justice? Or a political refugee in flight from persecution in her homeland? This is Woman on the Run, the Lori Bambenic story. Episode 1, Thunder Bay. It is the sentence of this court that you, Laurencia Bambenic, are to serve a term of life imprisonment in the Wisconsin State Prisons. The former Milwaukee cop and her boyfriend spent three months on the run before a tip led police to their Ontario hideout. Lori Bambenic's escape from prison on July 15, 1990, was big news across North America. Every newscast and radio program was reporting that Milwaukee, Wisconsin's most famous femme fatale was on the lam. She was the sexy and beautiful ex-cop and former Playboy Club waitress who had been convicted of killing her husband's ex-wife in 1981 and had already spent nine years in prison for a crime she swore she didn't commit. Tabloid talk shows popular at the time, like Inside Edition and Hard Copy, covered the story. And Lori's parents flew to New York to be on the Geraldo Rivera show. Soon, reporters from London, Japan, and Australia were calling. For years, Lori had been claiming that she was not only innocent of the crime she had been convicted of, but she had been framed by a corrupt Milwaukee police force. 
and a lot of people in Milwaukee believed her. So when she escaped from the Tachita Correctional Institution by climbing out an open laundry room window, her hometown city rallied behind her. Some Milwaukee stores began selling T-shirts, bumper stickers, and cardboard cutouts bearing the words, Run, Bambi, Run! Hundreds of people attended rallies organized by her supporters. A restaurant named a hamburger after her, and a nightclub held a Bambi lookalike contest. But the police and the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office were not impressed by the outpouring of support. To them, she was a convicted killer on the loose, and they were intent on getting her back. They quickly determined that her fiancé, Nick Gugliato, had helped her escape, and the two were on the run together. But there was no sign of them anywhere. A nationwide alert was issued, and friends and relatives were put under 24-hour surveillance. But support for Lori only grew the longer she was on the run. And one of her most ardent supporters used the opportunity to capitalize on the renewed interest in her case. Former Milwaukee policeman turned private investigator Ira Robbins had been trying to persuade the Milwaukee County prosecutors to undertake an independent investigation of the murder trial and conviction of Lori Bimbenek for years. Robbins believed that Lori had been framed because she had threatened to expose evidence of corruption within the Milwaukee police force. He said he could even prove that the police had tampered with some of the original evidence in the murder case. And he wanted to know why the prosecutor's office wouldn't review new evidence that would potentially exonerate Lori Bimbenek. The woman is innocent, and I won't stop until I prove that, said Robbins to anyone who would listen. He gathered several thousand signatures on a new petition demanding Lori get a new trial and organized a rally in front of the district attorney's office. But Robbins also knew that his efforts would be in vain if Lori wasn't recaptured. Without Lori back in custody, any new appeals or motions for a new trial could not be filed. And now, three months after her escape, Robin's client was sitting in a 20-by-7-foot jail cell in a northern Ontario city that most Americans had never heard of. And the Milwaukee authorities were already asking the Canadian police to send her back an automatic five years would be added to her current sentence for escaping prison. But what were the Canadians going to do? Were they going to extradite her right away so she could face American justice? Or were they going to listen to her claims of innocence and give her an opportunity to prove it? Laurencia Ann was born on August 15, 1959, to Joseph and Virginia Bembenek. Lori, as her family called her, was the youngest of three girls in a close-knit, working-class, Polish-American family. Lori was the miracle baby after the family had lost an infant boy eight years earlier. Growing up on the south side of Milwaukee, 
Lori attended Catholic school where she studied music and was a member of the school's track team. A tall, lanky tomboy, Lori was athletic, outgoing, and was well-liked by her peers. She had also developed a strong work ethic from her parents. Joseph Benbenek had worked as a Wisconsin police officer for three years, but had quit after witnessing corruption within the force. He then worked as a carpenter while Lori's mom stayed home with the girls. While Lori had been raised in a fairly traditional family setting, her parents encouraged all of their daughters to pursue their independence. After graduating from high school, Lori's dream was to become a veterinarian, but her grades were not high enough. Instead, she pursued a business degree in fashion merchandising and began modeling part-time. She was even Miss March 1978 in the Schlitz Brewing Company calendar, a Milwaukee favorite. At 5'10", with striking blue eyes and blonde hair, she was a natural beauty, but she soon discovered the fashion and modeling world wasn't as glamorous as it appeared. Lori wanted to make a difference in the world. She wanted to help others, and she wanted to be a role model for other women. So in 1979, at the age of 20, Lori applied and was accepted into the Milwaukee Police Academy. It turned out to be the first of many decisions she would later come to regret. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Lori excelled during police training at the academy, but quickly learned that the Milwaukee police force was not overly welcoming towards female police recruits or visible minorities. Instructors were extremely hard on the women, calling them names and making overt sexual advances. Most of the women in Lori's class dropped out. Teased because of her good looks, and nicknamed Bambi Bimbenic by her male colleagues, Lori knew she would have to develop a tough skin if she was going to last. On July 25, 1980, Lori graduated from the Milwaukee Police Department, sixth in her class. She was now Officer Bimbenic and was assigned to the south side of Milwaukee. The police training had been one of the worst experiences of her life, but she was determined to make it. She wanted to be a good cop, even though she quickly discovered that there were major problems within the police force. There were some decent officers, but from what Lori witnessed, they were in the minority. While on duty, Lori witnessed cops drinking on the job, selling drugs, taking bribes, using unnecessary force on handcuffed suspects when no one was looking, and obtaining sexual favors from local prostitutes. She was beginning to see why her father had switched careers. But there was no one to go to with a complaint. And besides, there was the Blue Shield, the unwritten yet very powerful code of protecting your fellow officer no matter what. If Lori wanted a career in policing, she would have to keep her mouth shut. But then, a month into her job as a police officer, Lori was fired. Given no reason for her dismissal, she was shocked. The following day, she learned that two other female officers had been fired on the same day, and both of them were black. Lori's parents had raised her to be a strong and confident woman and to stand up for herself. So she wasn't going to be bullied by chauvinistic cops. She quickly filed a grievance against the Milwaukee police force, another decision that would inextricably alter the course of her life. 
Lori eventually discovered that she was fired because the Milwaukee police had accused her of smoking marijuana with a fellow female cadet. Lori had befriended another woman at the police academy named Judy Zeiss. The two women became good friends and supported one another during the grueling 20-month training program. But while attending a music concert together one night, Judy Zeiss had been arrested for possession of marijuana by plainclothes policemen. Lori had been in the washroom when the arrest happened, but was later interrogated by the police. They wanted her to sign a confession that she had also used marijuana, and they wanted her to resign. Lori refused to do either. She would not confess to something she hadn't done, and she wouldn't be intimidated. Judy Zeiss had been fired right away, and when Lori was dismissed a few months later, she discovered that Judy had signed a statement saying that Lori had also smoked marijuana at the concert. Lori confronted her friend Judy about the lie, but Judy swore she had been threatened and bullied into signing the statement. Judy promised she would retract her statement, and Lori believed her. Soon, the two women were sharing an apartment and looking for new jobs. Lori was in a bad place. She had just lost the job she had worked so hard for, and she needed money to hire a lawyer to appeal her dismissal. She was barely scraping by, so she decided to take a waitressing job. But this wasn't just any serving position. Lori took a job as a waitress at the Playboy Club in Lake Geneva. And although she only worked there for six weeks, the Playboy Bunny label would haunt her for the rest of her life. In October 1980, Lori lost her grievance to be reinstated on the Milwaukee Police Force. Her law enforcement career was over for good, but she remained friends with some officers on the force and it was through one of her girlfriends that she met a Milwaukee detective named Alfred O. Schultz. Fred, as everyone called him, was a divorced father of two and was ten years older than Lori. While Lori initially found him cocky and arrogant, he was very good-looking and charming. The two were soon dating. Around the same time Lori met Fred, she also decided to file a lawsuit against the Milwaukee Police Department for discrimination. Lori met with James Morrison, an assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Wisconsin. Lori claimed that the Milwaukee PD was hiring women and visible minorities just to be eligible for affirmative action funds and grants. But then they were turning around and firing them soon after. It turned out that Morrison had already been looking into the hiring practices of the police department, so he wasn't surprised by Lori's claim. Lori had also discovered that the Milwaukee police held a wild picnic every year in which police officers would have wet t-shirt contests and pose nude in a public park. The picnic was put on by a local bar, which was a hangout for Milwaukee's finest. And since the party was a bunch of cops getting drunk, who was going to complain? For Lori, this was another blatant example of how sexist the Milwaukee police force was. 
the white male cops could get away with anything while she had been fired on a false accusation of smoking marijuana. Lori got hold of some pictures from the picnic and instantly recognized one of the naked cops. It was her new boyfriend, Fred Schultz. Bimbenik passed the pictures on to the Milwaukee Police Department's Internal Affairs Bureau. But in the weeks that followed, several troubling incidents suggested to Bimbenik that her activism against her former colleagues had made her some lasting enemies. The tires of her car were slashed, and a dead rat was left on her car's windshield. Then, she received an anonymous call in the middle of the night saying her mother was dead. It wasn't true, but the incidents had left the 22-year-old deeply shaken. With her career in tatters and her self-esteem destroyed, Lori was looking for reassurance, and she was easy prey for self-assured veteran Milwaukee detective Fred Schultz. Among his fellow officers, Schultz had a reputation for hard partying and womanizing. He was obnoxious and he'd brag about it, recalled one former Milwaukee policewoman. Schultz had also been the focus of an internal police investigation in 1975 when he had accidentally killed an undercover police officer during a call to a bar. But Bembenek saw none of Schultz's flaws. Nothing anyone could say about Fred would have changed my mind about how I felt, Laurie said years later. I fell under his spell. Despite his seemingly reckless and stupid behavior, Laurie had fallen in love with Fred. And on January 30th, 1981, after only two months of dating, they secretly married. But life for the newlyweds wasn't easy. Fred had only been legally divorced for two months when they got married, and he had to pay his ex-wife Christine alimony and child support. Christine and Fred Schultz had been married for 11 years and had two young sons, but she had finally gotten tired of his violent temper and his womanizing. Fred complained bitterly about his ex-wife and the money he had to give her. In fact, He had even threatened her when she told her lawyer that he was falling behind in his support payments. I'm going to blow your fucking head off, he told her. Christine Schultz had also gotten the house in the divorce, so Fred was also paying the monthly mortgage of $383. This left little for the newlyweds, so they moved into a small apartment with Lori's friend, Judy Zeiss. Fred didn't like the fact that Christine was living in the house he had built, and she was also dating a friend of his, another cop named Stu Honick. As the new, younger wife, Lori did not have much interaction with Christine, except when she would sometimes pick up the boys at her house. Lori had never wanted to have children, but she was slowly adjusting to having two rambunctious boys around on the weekends. Lori was also adjusting to married life. She was no longer a cop, but now she was the wife of one. It meant many nights alone when Fred was working a 12-hour shift. Lori spent most of her spare time with her friend Judy Zeiss, 
and the two women were continuing to support one another with respect to the complaint Lori had filed with the Equal Opportunity Commission. Judy had signed an affidavit saying she had been coerced into signing a false statement about Lori smoking marijuana at the concert they had attended. Judy also stated that she believed that she and Lori had been discriminated against because they were women and that white male police officers were given preferential treatment. And Lori had other documents to prove what they were claiming. In the year following her graduation from the police academy, five black men, four white women, and three black women had all been fired from the police force. Only one overweight white male officer had been let go. Lori and Fred did not talk much about her complaint against the Milwaukee police force, as he wanted her to drop it and move on. And besides, Fred still seemed more preoccupied with his ex-wife Christine and her new boyfriend. Fred bragged that he had gotten the fellow cop into trouble with the department because he was sleeping with the ex-wife of a fellow officer. For the Milwaukee men in blue, this was frowned upon. Lori often wondered why Fred couldn't seem to let go and move on. Five months into her marriage, Lori was wondering if she had made a mistake marrying Fred so soon after his divorce. It seemed like there were three of them in the marriage, but soon there would only be two. On May 28, 1981, shortly after 2.30 in the morning, police officers responded to an emergency call at 1701 West Ramsey Street on the south side of Milwaukee. The home was on a well-lit street in what was considered to be a safe neighborhood. When the police entered the house, they were met by two terrified boys, aged 10 and 8. It was the older boy who had called 911, saying his mother had been shot. In the master bedroom, the police found the boy's mother. She was lying on the bed with a clothesline cord wrapped around her hands in front of her and a blue bandana scarf wrapped around her head and mouth. She was wearing a yellow Adidas shirt and had a large bullet entry wound on her right shoulder. There was nothing the police officers could do. The woman was already dead. The 10-year-old boy told the police that he had woken up in the night with the feeling that he was being choked. Someone was standing over him, covering his face with a large gloved hand. He said he struggled with the assailant and broke free. He ran to his brother's room and saw that the intruder had gone into his mother's room. He heard his mother scream out, and then a loud sound like a firecracker. Then, the attacker ran past them and scrambled down the stairs. The boys described him as a tall white male with long red hair tied in a ponytail. They said he was wearing what looked like a green jogging suit and low-cut black shoes, similar to the kind police officers wore. The boys recognized the shoes because their dad, Fred Schultz, was a cop. 
and their mom, 30-year-old Christine Schultz, had just been murdered. On the next episode of Woman on the Run, the Lori Bembenek story. The Canadian authorities have an American fugitive in their custody, and Wisconsin authorities want her back. But she claims she is innocent and has already spent nine years in prison for a murder she didn't commit. All I know is I didn't kill Christine Schultz. And the public seems to be on her side. But what really happened on the night of Christine Schultz's murder? And why did the police set their sights on Lori Bembenek as the likely killer? Well, you know, I was arrested. Boom. I opened the door, and and, and there were two police detectives, and, and they said, you're under arrest. You know, and it was like a punch in the stomach. It was so, it was so unexpected. I, you know, it was nightmarish. Did Lori get a fair trial? Or was there a much larger conspiracy at play involving the very police force that had arrested her? Did she do it? No. I don't believe she did it. It seems like she was set up. And what was Canada going to do with her? Would she be extradited back to the U.S. to face justice? Or would the country Lori escaped to finally be able to set her free? There was a very high interest in Milwaukee in uh, getting her sent back as soon as possible and having this all shut down and just shut up up there in Canada. We don't want to hear this. Let us wrongly convict people down here and don't screw around with it. Woman on the Run, The Lori Bambenic Story, is written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. A special thank you to Jack Lakey. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. Visit us at storyhunterpodcasts.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you enjoyed this story and others on Story Hunter Podcasts, please subscribe on Apple or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.